Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Kimberly Aquaviva is a professor at the University of Virginia School of Nursing. She has won considerable recognition, rightly so, for her considerable work on issues in the LGBTQ community and end-of-life issues and other areas as well, and we may get to those if they should come up. She kindly agreed to talk to us today about these issues, and we thank you so much. Thanks so much for inviting me to be on your show. The New Yorker magazine did a documentary on you and Kathy, your partner who died. The documentary looked at what you went through in her death. It left me with the feeling that as painful as death is, it's a very natural part of life. But it also left me with the feeling that Kathy felt part of a meaningful life and there was comfort and emotional connections with her and that somehow she was not going to feel isolated after death. Many gestalt issues here, religious issues here, philosophic issues, but she seemed to be accepting all this. I thought it was a very powerful documentary. What message did the two of you want to give? Do you think that message got across to the viewer? Hmm. So when we found out that Kathy was sick, the day we found out she was sick was the same day that we found out that she was dying. And we talked about what kind of legacy she wanted to leave behind and also how we could go about helping to craft that legacy while she was still with us. So there was a lot of intentionality behind that. Kathy in life was a strategist. She always was a strategist. And um, she and I had both been end-of-life care professionals for most of our career. And so the message that she wanted to leave behind and the message that I wanted to help her leave behind and then carry forward was twofold. One, the process of dying does not need to be scary and it should be demystified. And the second is that LGBTQ folks who are experiencing serious illness, loss, grief, are just like everyone else in so many ways. And the reason for that second message, the reason why that was so important to her and to me was that it helps to bridge that lack of understanding that can be there when people who may have religious beliefs around things like homosexuality sometimes have trouble understanding and connecting with LGBTQ individuals and understanding their need for compassion. And so we were hoping to help help normalize the fact that dying in grief for a lesbian couple, there's a lot that's really similar to dying in grief for any other couple, and that hopefully that would make not only death and dying less frightening to people, but also LGBTQ people less frightening to people. I agree with you. Many years ago, worked with a gentleman whose partner died, and they had been together for many years, and this is when the use of the initials LGBTQ really weren't popular then. Mm-hmm. He said to me, what people don't understand, that my sexual preference orientation, I forget what word he used, he said, that's not the issue. The issue is that I love somebody and they die. Mm-hmm. No more than that. And I was so taken by that. And I guess over the years, I've seen it some other times. But when I saw your work, and one of the biggest questions that we have to ask is, how sad, how troubling it is to think that in this day and age, when people are dying, they still face discriminations. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts on that? As I say that, what creates yeah. in your mind? There's a, quite a bit of research out there, and some of the best research has been done by Gary Stein and Kathy Berkman in New York, looking at not only the perspectives of hospice and palliative care providers, but then also the perspectives of surviving caregivers 
of LGBTQ individuals who received end-of-life care and pretty, pretty profoundly disturbing findings regarding the prevalence of discrimination in end-of-life care when someone is facing a serious illness and anticipating the loss of a spouse or partner. The last thing that you want to have to deal with is discrimination, and you certainly don't want to have to be in a teachable moment. And so when I say that dying and end of life for an LGBTQ person is so similar to the experience of of a cisgender heterosexual person or couple, it is similar. But the difference is that for most cisgender heterosexual people, they are not the first person or one of the first people that a healthcare provider has cared for who identified in that way. And there isn't this sort of odd mix of curiosity and discomfort that often LGBTQ individuals experience. And so when Kathy was sick and when she was dying, really one of our primary hopes was to avoid any encounters with healthcare professionals where we were treated as as either a curiosity or an abomination. And so we really minimized our contact with healthcare professionals for that reason. And of course, she was lucky that you're a nurse. You know what's so funny? Everyone always thinks I'm a nurse. You are not alone. Everyone thinks I'm a nurse. And I always have to tell them, no, I'm not a nurse. So I am, I'm an odd duck in many ways. But okay. one of the ways I'm an odd duck is I'm a social worker who has worked my entire career in schools of nursing because my commitment has always been to educating nurses and interprofessional practice. When I was actively doing clinical work in hospice, I was doing work in partnership with nurses. My grandmother was a nurse. And I have always felt like one of the best ways to have a positive impact in healthcare was to be involved in the education of the health profession that is most numerous in terms of just the sheer numbers in our healthcare system, and that's nursing. So I am an endowed professor of nursing who is not a nurse. Interesting. The oddity is there, but um, <laughs> in, in this case, I'm delighted to be corrected. Good, good social work model and not the strict medication model. Social work degree definitely teaches you strategies and techniques mm -hmm. that are focused on change, but also focused on really person-centered. And, and some of those can be really in conflict with the medical model. So I can see mm -hmm. how it might get you into some good trouble. Over the course of the years, given the fact that there is so much more discussion about the LGBTQ communities, I would think it would not be as difficult. And I'm reflecting back on what you said a few sentences ago, that the person who is dying may feel un uncomfortable about something, but is there a dysfunctional discomfort on the part of the caregivers in dealing with someone who is not heterosexual in the same way they are? The other side of the desk, so to speak, again. Absolutely. I mean, I think the discomfort when I talk about the discomfort of someone who's LGBTQ and is dying or their family member or loved one and the discomfort they experience, I think the discomfort ends up coming from a place of fearful of how healthcare providers are going to receive them, putting aside also any of their fears and anxieties around their illness and dying as well. On the part of healthcare professionals, I think at least the healthcare professionals that I've talked with and interacted with, many have really, really good intentions and want to do their very best at providing care to someone who's LGBTQ, but many aren't sure what questions to ask, what questions not to ask. They're not sure how to signal or signify that they are accepting without seeming intrusive. 
And particularly when it comes to transgender patients, clinicians may really feel like they just, they don't even know where to start. Most healthcare professionals receive very, very little training regarding how to work with LGBTQ populations. And I think on the part of clinicians, there is discomfort. Discomfort not only around awkwardness around how to ask questions, but sometimes, I I don't even want to say sometimes, many times discomfort that's rooted in their own biases or judgments or preconceived ideas about LGBTQ individuals. Whenever I do a talk with a group of people, healthcare professionals, I'll often ask them to raise their hand if they grew up in a faith community of, of some kind or a faith tradition, and almost always most people have. And then I ask them, of those of you who grew up in a faith tradition of some kind, did that faith tradition have a strong position on homosexuality and specifically homosexuality being a sin? You were talking about what it's like when the healthcare community comes and they they come from a background where they weren't given either adequate training or adequate exposure or the ability to Mm -hmm. be accepting. And oftentimes people have, they come with their own personal beliefs or biases or experiences and not the professional training about how to be able to understand where where their professional role starts and where where they need to be aware of their own biases and preconceived ideas. So one of the things that I spend a lot of time talking to people about is that it is okay to have a religious frame of reference or a spiritual frame of reference around issues about sexuality, issues around gender and gender identity. And at the same time, if they're a healthcare professional, they have an obligation to provide exceptional care to LGBTQ patients. So doing that does not require them to put aside their beliefs or to change their religious beliefs or to change any of that. What it does require is for them to be really conscious of what is their scope of practice, in their professional role, and what are their obligations as a healthcare professional? And all of the healthcare professionals can agree when I talk with them that their scope of practice does not involve being responsible for the destination of a person's soul after they die. Good and point. so, since that is not in their scope of practice, they're, what they're charged to do is to provide the most exceptional care they can to people while they're here on earth. And sorting out what their own beliefs are and keeping those beliefs from ever being visible to patients is incredibly important. As you talk, the average person that I talk to, and me too, I must confess, me too at times, when I think of hospice, that's supposed to be this unbelievably, genuinely good, accepting Mm -hmm. agency that all the other issues are no longer an issue. And you're telling me no. I think so many people have an image of hospice as being benevolent angels, you know, folks, and everyone I know in hospice is exceptionally well-intentioned. But what we know is, all of us know, that often our intent doesn't necessarily match our impact. So you can have well-intentioned people who, if they don't have training, the impact of the care they provide is suboptimal. And so we know that if you have a physician or nurse, who's well-intentioned, but they do not have training in something, they're not going to be able to do as good a job as someone who does have training and experience. And so similarly, when hospices fall short, it is not because of an ill intention. 
It's because there's good intention and an assumption that good intentions are enough. And they're not. Fair enough. And you bring up an interesting thing because if it's simply the, I'll use the word mechanical, and I don't mean to make it Mm -hmm. neutral, but if it's the mechanical, physical administration of medications and comfort and the like, that's easy. You're talking about it more from a social work, psychological, spiritual, existential, whatever other word we want to put in the list, the experience of hospice. I would argue that the physical medical aspects cannot be in any way separated from the human because medications are not being administered by robots and bed baths are not being given by robots. They're humans who are doing those. And so even the act of giving medication or giving a bath, and I would say especially those acts, which don't feel like they are, to some individuals, they don't think of those as being a a space in which psychosocial support is being provided, and yet they are. Because any human connection that's happening within hospice is an opportunity for compassion to be communicated or an opportunity for the opposite to be communicated. That's why it's incredibly important that every single member of the team that interacts with the patient, and that is the people who deliver durable medical equipment to the home, the people who deliver the meds, volunteers who are in the home, home health aides and CNAs, all of them need to have the opportunity to receive education from their hospice program about how to work with LGBTQ patients. And really, it gives them a space in which the staff members can be able to process what their own discomfort is before they're in the home, making sure that they understand pronouns, that they understand language, that they understand the ways to communicate compassion, and also the ways that their behaviors might unintentionally communicate the exact opposite. So how much of this process is actually occurring, and I guess by the flip side of this, how much from your perspective needs to occur? If I had to give a rough, this is a guess, because um, it is hard to get data from every hospice about what they're doing. If I had to guess, I would say 95% of hospices have not provided training. And that's a, that's a conservative estimate. It's probably 98% of hospices have not provided training to CNAs, home health aides, volunteers, social workers, and others, specifically around providing LGBTQ inclusive care. By spinning this a bit, might we, and tell me if I'm overdoing it, perhaps in the LGBTQ community, there may be the unspoken message, if you need to go into hospice, don't. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's not even an unspoken message. I think as research has come out, identifying the existence of bias, discrimination, and poor care in hospice, Kathy Berkman and Gary Stein's research, their first study that was involving surveying hospice providers, this is not even asking patients and families their experience. This is asking providers whether they have personally witnessed discriminatory care happening pretty frightening results. I think poor care does happen. I like to look at the non-discrimination statement, the bare minimum that a hospice should do to demonstrate at least an intention of providing good care. And many hospices still do not have an LGBTQ inclusive non-discrimination statement. 
So they will say we will not discriminate on the basis of sex, religion, race, gender. Sometimes they'll have sexual orientation. Very rarely do they have sexual orientation and gender identity. And the non-discrimination statement is not a statement saying you're going to get good care. It's a statement saying we're not going to treat you badly because of this factor. And many hospices have not even taken the step to go that far to say we won't discriminate against you based on this. I find that disturbing. I'm glad you're saying it, but I find it disturbing. It should not be. It just should. I mean, I I find it disturbing as well. When um, Kathy and I moved to Charlottesville, she had been receiving palliative care outpatient when we were in D.C., and we moved to Charlottesville and discovered that none of the hospices locally had an LGBTQ inclusive non-discrimination statement. None of them had a statement that said they would not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And so we opted not to have hospice. And we had some pretty painful conversations back and forth in email with medical directors of local hospices who knew us and reassured us that we would get great care. Both of us were really well known in the field. We had been doing hospice and palliative care work nationally for 20 years. And so they said, no, we're going to make sure you get great care. And Kathy and I were both really direct that the best thing they could do to help us right now would be to change their non-discrimination statement and make a commitment to start educating their staff. And all of the local hospices within 10 days had changed their non-discrimination statement. Kathy died about five days after that. And we, we knew we wouldn't be accepting hospice. And we were clear with everyone we wouldn't be accepting hospice if they changed their non-discrimination statement. We were saying, this is something you can do to be helpful for other patients and families moving forward. And now I can say that I would feel comfortable seeking hospice care from any of the local hospices that serve Charlottesville because they've, they've done the work and they're working really hard to try to make sure that they're educating their staff. So progress is being made, but it's slow progress. And to go back to the word disturbing or maybe disappointing, there seems to be this false assumption that these are not issues in hospice care. You're helping inch our society towards better care. This is fabulous. I wish we had so much more time. But if I can, obviously I never met Kathy, but if this is part of her legacy, then it's a wonderful legacy. And we Thank you so much. To both of you, to both of you. Thank you. Kimberly Aquaviva is a social worker who is also a professor of nursing at the University of Virginia School of Nursing. Thank you. Thank you for finding something that needs to be done and trying to fix it. And we, we all have to just say thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate the work that you're doing as well. Well, thank you.